Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I am here with my friend, Chris Bogue. Chris, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. Thank you for being here. This is a pretty quick turnaround from the uh, mentioning you in a thing to interviewing you. That was uh, one of the quickest uh, rope-a-dopes. How are you? I'm uh, pretty good. Um, I don't have any water in my place today, but that's fine. You know, it's not like I need that to live or anything. So just great. So it seems like you're freshly showered, it sounds like. Yeah, I did shower right before they shut it off. So I'm not gonna offend you odorously well we don't have smell of vision yet i don't think oh good <laughs> it's not one of those podcasts no oh are there any of those that'd be good for a cooking one i bet yeah no i i'm gonna run and go patent that because that's a good idea so i like to start the show off with a a little bit of a humble brag or like a what not humble brag whatever it is that you're comfortable sharing in terms of e inflating that ego so then we when we take the arrow later, it won't be as as bad. Oh, um, okay. Am I allowed to swear? You can swear as much as you like. Okay. I do mind fucking blowing shit on LinkedIn. <laughs> and if your audience does not follow me, I do shit you wouldn't believe on LinkedIn. And it's only going to get crazier, folks. So that is, I will brag about that. Most LinkedIn content sucks. Mine is pretty fun. Yeah, yours is great. I've I've joked that uh, LinkedIn is like business meeting stand up comedy. So it's there's no expectation of any jokes. So anything that's funny is like at a meeting at a business meeting. People are like, yes, I want to laugh, please. I hate my existence. So I love what you're doing on LinkedIn. It's usually a pretty boring platform, but I appreciate all the stuff you're putting out there. And I'll definitely put your your bio in the notes and everything so people can follow you. And if you're not, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. Ding the bell. <laughs> It's such a bad bell. You get a little bell. You get a little bell on LinkedIn. If you click it, you'll see my posts. And I update every day. And um, it's not the easiest thing in the world to make business stuff funny. Mm -hmm. But I do. And yeah, it beats beats uh, most of the hustle porn, you know, inspiration that doesn't really inspire kind of posts that I see there. Yeah trying to be the change I want to see, you know? For sure. I, I'm very happy that you're doing that because I think we need more people doing that kind of stuff. And I feel like your level of comedy is much higher than what's necessary. So I'm glad that I'm laughing while looking at LinkedIn, which is fabulous. Also, we just did that improv room about a week ago. You want to tell folks about what that was? Yeah. So this is a new show that I'm picking up. I haven't picked an exact recurring date. Uh, but it's my new LinkedIn audio stream, Chris Bogue and Friends, a Pass the Mic improv show. So Ben uh, participated in the very first episode. It is a short, fast improv show where a lot of voices all contribute. And again, it's it's kind of trying to be the opposite of what I see out there on LinkedIn. So I see a lot of boring business types giving monologues about how much money they made um, I wanted to do something short and fun and collaborative and creative. So yeah, we did that. And Ben and I 
That's how we we've been chatting on LinkedIn for a while, but that was the first time we ever like did an event together. So that was lots of fun. Yeah. So if people out there are sick of hating improv from home or hating it in real life, you could hate it in just audio only because it seems like most people who talk about improv don't seem to like it as much as some of the other brands of comedy. So do you want to give people a reason why they should support and enjoy improv? I know you went to Second City, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but uh, and I think that's improv mostly uh, exclusively. Is that right? improv and sketch and they do you know musical comedy and they have stand-up classes and but uh i was primarily doing sketch comedy at second city i had my own improv group prior to that and i did shows for a few years at a theater called comedy sports i would say improv regardless of what you think of it as an art form it's useful for people to learn Mm -hmm. you know it is not about being funny which is probably why, you know, some people hate on it. Um, but when you see it done at a high level, it is uh, listening, it is collaboration. And, you know, I've done all sorts of improv. I've done improvised sitcoms. I've done improvised dramatic plays. I've done improvised musicals, improvised wrestling shows, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a big reason why I'm able to create a lot of content for my business every week. I've always got new stuff going on. I'm doing new video projects, new collaborations, new sketch processes. And um, yeah, I make a lot of business material too. And it's because I improv teaches you how to make something from nothing, you know, Uh and um, you know, Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon or whoever, they don't get to go to work in the morning and say, I had writer's block today, just couldn't think of anything funny. I guess we're not (laughs) gonna do a show. You know, it's like, you gotta get an hour of entertainment out there no matter what happened in the world today, you know? And I really try to embrace that on LinkedIn. And um, in improv, they teach you, you you can't go fishing for the suggestion. You you ask the audience for a suggestion. The first thing you hear, you have to take it, you know? So um, it's made me very fearless in sales and business. And it taught me how to go into situations without a roadmap, without a plan, without any expectations for how it will uh, go and just teach me how to listen and uh, run on pure intuition. Yeah, it wasn't uh, Colbert, a Second City guy. Yeah, so um, Stephen Colbert was uh, on stage at the time. It was him and uh, Steve Carell and Amy Sedaris and Paul Danello. They were all in the cast at the same time. Was Amy Poehler there too at the same time? I feel like Amy she's... Poehler was a different time. So she was there. She and Tina Fey were around the same time. Amy Poehler wasn't in the Second City main stage because she went to New York and she helped found the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. And, the, and Colbert did that too. Is that right? Or no, no. Colbert was not. Colbert was uh, they and they did Improv Olympic too. Improv Olympic is more improv based than Second City. Okay, I think in her book was it Yes Please or something. I don't know what her book is. Yeah, Yes Please. Pretty, I think she mentioned him a bunch. That's maybe why I'm thinking it. Yeah, and it's one of those things where they all there's all a lot of overlap there, and there was definitely uh-huh. this moment I had growing up where I realized that a lot of my favorite shows had interlocking writers who had all studied there, you know? So Bob Odenkirk, another great example, Second City guy. He wrote the original Van Down by the River sketch. That that oh. was a Second City sketch. Bob Odenkirk played Phil Hartman's part in there. And yeah, just like there's John Belushi and um, Bill Murray 
and um, you know, just and then there's Second City Toronto. So you had, you know, mm-hmm. Martin Short and um John Candy and you know Eugene Levy and all the people from Best in Show and all that and um the kids in the hall and um yeah they all there was a lot of overlap they all learned from the same people you know there was a lot of overlap in the writers rooms and um yeah I I grew up and I was just fascinated by that and they were my heroes you know I would watch all this stuff on TV I watched the Simpsons a lot of a lot of overlap in that writer's room from SNL too. And I was just like, this looks like the greatest time on earth. This looks so much fun. And I just wish I could do this. You know, I wish I could be up there with these guys. And, um, you know, Chris Farley, another Second City guy. Mike Myers, another Second City guy. They are all yeah. then. And the thing about Second City that's great is I had someone who visited Chicago once mm-hmm. and she went to Second City and she's like, where are all the celebrities? <laughs> And I'm like, they're not celebrities yet. (laughs) That's the thing is you go to Chicago to pour your heart out into improv and make no money. Nobody makes money doing it here. If you want to make money doing improv, you have to move to a different city and start your own improv theater or start your own business and teach weirdos on LinkedIn how to do (laughs) improv, like how I did. Yeah. So can you tell us how you got into Second City or like what what even brought you in that direction and how you pivoted to do working for yourself? Yeah. So Second City was not my first stop in the comedy world. I did improv in high school and college and college. We were national champions. I had a group that I was very close with. And you see this very often in comedy. Like I was talking about the interlocking writers rooms. Um, oftentimes people come up together in groups and um you know, the Reno 911 people, there's mm-hmm. another great example. They do all of each other's stuff. They always stick around in each other's lives. So I was very comfortable. I graduated college. We had a group. I was not the one who was planning the shows and, and booking the spaces. I would just write. We would do a half sketch, half improv show every week. Mm-hmm. We did it for years. We had a nice following. We would fill the house. We were experimenting with forms. And then half my group decided to go to L.A. because they wanted to be celebrities And I didn't have the self-confidence to go with them. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was the least talented person in the group. And it broke my heart, you know, because here I had these people that were playing with me that I could rely on, who were very funny, very talented, very well-trained, that we had a great working relationship with. And they all picked up and left, you know. So I started taking classes at the Second City. And uh, for a while, I was really working behind the scenes. So I did a number of shows that I was not in. Mm -hmm. I wrote the show. I directed it. I cast it. um, You know, I produced it. But I was not actually on the stage. And that gave me a whole different insight in how to work. And I believe that really helps me today as a corporate trainer, uh, as an, as a consultant, as somebody who has to come in and collaborate with businesses on their messaging. I have a lot of experience directing ensembles that I'm not in. And you know, my, my experience is how do you get a good performance out of another person? You know, how do you get them invested in it? How do you make it so it becomes their words and they take ownership of it? Yeah, I started doing the shows there poured my heart out into it it's kind of a dead end you know unless you don't go to another city you mean 
like unless you expand to be to yeah what happens at second city is you you know you take your classes and then you're done and they go congratulations good luck you know and you really got to put your own stuff together find your own people it's kind of like starting from scratch again and yeah a very few percentage of the people who actually take the classes wind up on the main stage and very few of them actually make it to snl or whatever yeah you know you get all starry-eyed when you start the classes and then you get done and you're like i have nothing to show for this you know mm -hmm. maybe a hundred people showed up to my show but no one really and i didn't really make any money on it and then the second it's done everybody's like okay well when's the next one you know i'm like well that was really hard to write and produce and <laughs> yeah um you know that was a full band and musical numbers and dance numbers and i was gonna say it reminds me of when i was in a band and we wrote for eight months we had like 10 songs maybe and then we did a, a show in boston at the cantab lounge and then the keyboardist moved the next day to canada and we were like we can't redo all this because it's you know it's a lot of time and energy i can only imagine that and i we didn't have any confidence or i didn't have any confidence uh being in a band but the band plus the comedy plus everything else that sounds like it be a giant pain in the ass you know to to kind of redo any of that stuff and especially when you put so much time and energy into making that thing good yeah and that's the the interesting thing about my current project is like i kind of accidentally fell back into sketch comedy mm -hmm. i thought i was done i hadn't done shows in a long time well so when people when you said the uh you broke up with the friends that you're doing the improv group was that after second city was that how you got into that and like what happened with the end of it yeah so um second city ended with me just like doing some shows and just kind of fizzling out like it's so hard to market those shows. I say to all these sales guys out there on LinkedIn, they all want to talk about the hardest sale, you know, like, oh, I sold copy machines. Oh, I sold, you know, magazine <laughs> subscriptions door to door. Mm -hmm. I'm like, go sell some tickets. Mm -hmm. You know, that's actually pretty hard, especially if you don't have a lot of self-confidence. Yeah. Just be like, oh, you should go pay $15 to just watch me like do whatever on stage. To judge me every 20 seconds, whether I'm funny or not, basically. Yeah, it's like, no, you gotta, you really gotta sell it. Like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and it's hard, you know? Cause a lot of the times too, the people you're selling to don't have a lot of money cause they're broke and taking the classes too. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's hard. And I got worn out and it's like writing the show, producing the show, scheduling the show was a completely different skill than marketing the show mm -hmm. and i got burnt out on marketing the shows you know and now i'm doing sketch comedy on linkedin i'm doing funny stuff on tiktok but it's actually way easier for me to sell that now because now i'm i actually can like bring value to people's businesses so i have no shame yeah asking them to pay me because i know i can actually help them accomplish the things they need to accomplish it was a lot harder when i was like just show up and watch me because i'm so great you know i i felt like a total fraud doing that yeah so it seems like you're pretty self-confident now was that is that just coming from doing a lot more of it and being more online and videos or how, how'd you go from the guy who thought he was least funny to now embracing the funny oh that's such a great question um a lot of that and this goes to why i'm on this episode in the first place <laughs> i eventually ran out of ways to fail mm. so like i wasn't doing shows nobody knew who i was friends moved away 
their careers were taken off. They're writing for shows. They're getting famous. They're getting followings. They're making more money than I, they've ever made in their life. And I'm sitting at home in an entry level job that I'm ashamed of. COVID happened at the time I was selling classroom discussion software to universities. So it's a very long sales cycle. Blackboard kind of thing or what was it? Uh, it was like a component of Blackboard. It was uh, okay. it was like a critical thinking based discussion software that integrated with Blackboard. Mm -hmm. So it was a long sale. I was selling to elite professors. So they were at universities, some of the most elite universities in the country. And COVID happened. And all of a sudden, they had no idea what they were doing. And I was sitting there. And I have a very disarming style. I don't go in there like a big shot. I go in there just like a guy they can talk to. And yeah, I found out. I'm like, you know what? I was so self-conscious because I didn't have a master's degree or a PhD or whatever. These people do not know what they're doing because the world was not designed to change this fast. And, um, you know, I needed to reach them because I had a quota to hit. I couldn't call their office. I couldn't visit them on campus. I couldn't visit them at educational conferences. So those are my three best routes to reach them. And I'm like, I'm going to get on video. I'm just going to turn the camera on. And if I can get their attention for 30 seconds, I can, I can start a dialogue, you know? Yeah. And um, because of the sketch writing, because of the improv, I had also done some television work in my 20s. All of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm better at this than my entire sales team. You know, my bosses do not know how to keep it to 30 <laughs> seconds and how to just be compelling for a moment, but I do. And I had a really great campaign where I just smoked the rest of the team. I hit my quota super early, just smashed it. It was amazing. And then we had a really abysmal quota. We had a really abysmal campaign. 90 something percent of the team missed quota. Mm -hmm. And I had it. I just walked out and I said to myself, I go, you know what? I have gotten a taste of how powerful this is. Yeah. And business schools don't teach this, you know? So there is no right way to do this yet. I'm going to go out and I'm going to build the process and I'm going to sell that. And, you know, I just started reaching out to people. I started looking for consulting work. I started looking for people who I could uh, help build their sales process and help get them trained. And then I started making like explainer videos on LinkedIn to, to tell the world about this process. And I started doing stuff about cold calling and pretty soon I was playing different characters. <laughs> and then I did the sell me this pen bit from the Wolf of Wall Street. And um, it went viral on TikTok. It blew up. And it, I had never had anything get that many views before. And I realized like, oh, this is powerful. You know, this is like, if I go out there and I be, I'm funny, I can get in front of these sales leaders and these corporate executives and these entrepreneurs and these influencers. I can get into their mindset. I can get into their consciousness. I can become part of their world. And all I got to do is be funny, you know? And the more I started doing stuff, the more I started trying to push the boundaries, the more I started to try to be weird and really just do things that nobody else was doing on LinkedIn, the more it just worked, you know, the more I would get inbounds, the more people would be like, this is cool. I want more of it, you know? And, um, but yeah, I was only able to throw caution to the wind because I was like, I can't fail any harder than this anymore, you know? 
Well, that's kind of what what's the beauty of it is sometimes hitting that rock bottom area allows you to just rewrite what's going on or, or not care what people think anymore. And I think the other thing is that you're saying that like after after being unsure of yourself for so long, I think with age, maybe because I'm I don't know how old you're, I'm 37, but uh, you realize that at some point no one knows what they're doing at all. Everyone's just making up what's going on in life, even if people have a, a specific field that they're good in. In general, they have no idea what's happening for the most part, almost everybody, including myself. <laughs> so, yeah, no, and they and they don't care either, Ben. They don't care that you're suffering. Yeah. And it's not because they're sociopaths. It's because, like, we are not wired. We don't have the capacity to process all the injustice there is in the world. You know, people got to take care of themselves. They got to take care of their family. They got to get their bills paid. And they're really not searching for our flaws the way we are, you know? Yeah. Well, I think Seth Godin said that our parents' heads are 25 times more congested or full of info than our grandparents. And our heads are 25 times more uh, cluttered than our parents. So like, as you know, as the generation has gone, we're just going to have more and more information overload where we can't process the amount of things. And therefore, when you choose what you're going to worry about, you're probably going to choose to avoid those pain things and go more towards the pleasure when you only got so much bandwidth. Yeah. And it's like, and this is the thing that really I, I harp on with people. And this is actually, this is going to be an interesting turn my content takes because um, I've been uploading all these uh home videos from my parents, right? I went and I got a couple boxes full of VHS tapes and I'm like, I'm just going to digitize the Bogue family footage and band concerts and speech team competitions and school plays and improv shows. And I'm watching it all over again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, this is bad. Look at how bad I was up there. Yeah. And I tell people it's like those bad performances, when you go up there and bomb, it sticks with you, you know, and some people what that that feeling is so uncomfortable, they just spend the rest of their lives protecting themselves from it. You know, like I do. I've got instruments in the background here. Um, So I was I was in band when I was a little kid. And, you know, we would go to these jazz concerts, we'd have these jazz concerts and I would, you know, when you have to play a solo, you have to stand up so everyone can see you play your little solo. And I would always screw up. (laughs) The nerves would always get to me, you know? Yeah. And at some point I had this realization as an adult that like, I always remembered the one note that screwed up, Mm -hmm. but my classmates, probably just remember that I was the guy playing the solo. Yeah. That you'd stand up and do it. Yeah. That that was me up there. I, I played it and they did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever now people tell me they see me doing the video thing and they're like, well, I could never do the video thing. Cause I'm not you, you know, I'm like, they're like, you know, it's it must be so easy for you. I'm like, my videos bomb all the time. You know, I bomb so often nobody notices because they notice the ones that succeed. Yeah. Jumping back to Second City, there is a documentary that I love that WTTW Chicago made. It's called Second to None. If your audience wants to check this out, it might be hard to find now. Um, 
But the premise was they go in with a camera crew and it's day one of a new Second City show, right? So the performers are all brand new. They have no material. And the documentary follows them through the rehearsal process up until the opening night. And you see how they generate this entire show from nothing. And uh, that show was called Paradigm Lost. And that was Tina Fey's first ever Second City show. It was Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch and Scott Adsit. Mm. And um, it, it, it went down as one of the best reviewed Second City shows of all time. It was absolutely incredible. Um, but they have this wonderful scene where you get to watch them bomb. You get to watch Scott Adsit and Tina Fey do the shittiest improv scene ever. And they leave it in the documentary and they show you up there. They're trying things and the audience is not laughing. <laughs> and they're they're trying anything to get a laugh and it's not working. And it cuts to the director, Mick Napier, who explains that, yeah, you know what? Even at the highest levels of improv, they've still only got like an 85 to 90% success rate. Yeah, there's no guarantee that it'll be whatever comes out of there heads or, or their chemistry will work. But that's the thing. It's like the scene is lame. It's like, okay, it's 45 seconds long. And then you just rush into another scene. Mm -hmm. And as long as the next scene is funny, all is forgiven, yeah. you know? And if you get enough of those big moments where they're laughing and they're really invested in it, they don't go, oh, remember that one scene with the doctor that, that kind of dragged on? You know, they remember the thing that made them laugh. Yeah. And that's that's the thing about content where it's like you just it, and and everybody gets so afraid because they don't want to be shamed. They don't want to be on r slash LinkedIn lunatics <laughs> um, like some of my friends on LinkedIn have found themselves there. Um, but the reality is that's not usually what happens. Usually if your content is lame, what happens is they read it for half a second and then they just keep scrolling. Yeah, it just goes nowhere or the algorithm doesn't pick it up. You get very low. Use and then you just move on to the next thing. Ideally, you don't beat yourself up too much. I wish I had haters, you know, <laughs> um, that that would be good for my engagement. Uh, but no, usually what they do is they just scroll on by. It's just yeah. not interesting to them. So it would just like your problems, you know, mm -hmm. and people are like, oh, I'm so this and that. I'm not good looking. I'm this. It's like, well, your audience does not care. <laughs> they don't. And uh, well, sorry, I, just when you said a video must be so easy, I um. I was posting a video earlier of the Carol Baskin interview, and then I was like, wow, my video quality was absolutely garbage at the time because I didn't know. I'd done mostly like screen recordings of how to do Excel stuff. I didn't put myself in it, so I didn't need to know how how to look good on camera, do any lighting stuff. Now I've upped my game a bit, but when people see you and they're like, oh, you're so great. It's like, yeah, because you did it so many times and messed up so many different ways. You tried, probably tried to record it in a bunch of different ways. And now you're just comfortable with the process. And I think that's what it is, is you just kind of keep messing around and fucking it up until you figure out how to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. And again, they don't they don't care when you fail. They just care when you succeed, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I tell my clients this because it drives them nuts. Uh, it drives me nuts. <laughs> Anybody who does video, I tell mm -hmm. them it's like, look, you're going to spend 12 hours on a video that fails. And the video that you rattle off in five minutes is often the one that's a big hit. You know, yeah. like the amount of work that you put into it is important to you. Yeah. But all the audience cares about is relevance. Mm -hmm. Like, is it relevant to them? Is it what they want to see? 
Um, so I tell people, I'm like, you are not, you are not the judge of good content. You have no idea what good content is. I do not have any idea what good content is. The audience reveals that to us, you know, mm -hmm. and you think your voice sounds weird and your chin looks weird and your haircut is this and that. And this, you're like, um, your audience might disagree with you. Yeah. Like they are not, they, the, your inner critic and your audience may disagree on your performance. So you got to separate yourself and your feelings mm -hmm. and you just got to put it out there and see how it lands. Yeah. I think, uh, what I tend to do is try to make it so that my goal is the thing I can control, which is the amount of episodes of this, for example, that I put out there, not how many people download it. Cause I can't control, you know, the amount of downloads it gets. I can try to use it as feedback as to whether something worked, but I'm not going to really be able to use that as a metric for how I'm doing. Like for the first year of the podcast, I was getting like one download a day and that was not very encouraging, but at the same time, it was only because of that whole year that I had been doing it that it even started to pop off later on. So I think the thing is like, if you focus on what you can control and make the goal be about something that, that's within your realm of control, then you have more ability to create something that does click with, with the uh, audience. Yeah. And I don't leave it up to chance either. Mm -hmm. I do, I do some things that people just don't do, you know, when I started off. So, and let, let's, uh, so your audience knows, again, we're talking about failure here. So mm -hmm. I missed my quota and I got on a pip. They gave me a pip. Oh, I've been on those. I was not happy about that. So I beat the pip oh. as the top revenue earner in the company that month. And as soon as I beat the pip, I quit with a one sentence email. Never done that. But I sent a what one sentence. The sentence? I quit. Uh, it was morning. I won't mention their name here but mm -hmm. morning so and so due to personal reasons i am tendering my immediate resignation from company thanks for everything chris bogue that's awesome because so i don't know if you know why i call myself the world's number one failure but i've been fired from every job i've had since graduating college which is six for six now when i started the podcast it was only five for six so i never quit by my own choice. I did fake resign for the first one because they made me do it. But my point is, how'd you know? I guess you knew that when you were treated so poorly, that was the last straw kind of thing. Cause I, I never quit. And then I just, I just physically retract from the work and then, you know, I eventually get let go, but I didn't know what was your, I, uh, I was, I felt I was working on something incredibly important. And if we want to get into the weeds of that campaign, I, uh, you know, I was selling to universities and, um, you know, the, some of the universities were just hot, you know, they, we had users there, we had a good network or whatever. Mm -hmm. And someone on my team who was younger than me uh, got the hottest school in the company because mm -hmm. his boss got promoted to leadership. So he got handed to him this amazing opportunity and I got our hardest school. I got our school where it was like our competitor had an exclusive deal there. So all the students got our competitors product for free mm -hmm. and um, they had not been opening our emails. We'd been spamming them for years. It was like impossible to get meetings there. And our CEO had told us like, I want a champion, find me a champion. They said, all right. 
So um, I got on the video thing. All their instructional designers were furious because they were loyal to our competitor and I did not care. Mm -hmm. I got meetings with all the decision makers, all the potential big adopters, everybody who had the big classes. And this was for the spring campaign. And I was told by them, they're like, look, we don't adopt new technology in the spring. But we should all have a talk, all of us, leadership and you, because we want to explore this. Mm -hmm. And I told that to my bosses and they put me on the pip because I didn't close it, you know, and I'm like, I just looked at it as like I broke through. I completely rebranded our product in enemy territory behind enemy lines. Big win. And I was able to get all the top decision makers to stop rejecting our emails and actually meet with us. If you guys can't see how powerful this is, I need to go just sell it myself, you know? And I looked at it. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. And I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? For the first time in my life, I see my window of opportunity and Mm -hmm. it is closing. Every single day that I am not doing this gives somebody else the chance to go out there and be the guy, you know? And um, I told them, I I sat down in my exit interview and my literal words were, I go, you know what? All you guys want to do is convince me that I'm down here Mm because I missed that quota and you and I disagree. I look in the mirror and I see Chris Bogue, best in the biz, you know? And um, that's not what you guys see. You guys don't see me as leadership material. Yeah, if I miss another quota, I am toast. I am I am jobless, you know, I am. Yeah. And yeah, I realize I go, you know, you never want to be stagnant in a position. This is mm-hmm. worse than stagnant. I am sliding backwards here. Yeah, you're retrograding or whatever the hell it would be. I got to go. I got to go. I, I could not let the last thing I do mm-hmm. be being unceremoniously fired because I missed my pip. Um, yeah. But yeah. We got to we got to part ways now. So thanks for everything, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, it was freeing, but it was also like, well, I can't get unemployment (laughs) and I can't have any of my bosses put in a good word for me. Yeah. You know, so um, I'm just going to start making friends on LinkedIn, you know, and I just started looking for people doing video. Anybody who was making goofy video content for a B2B company, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to find this person. I'm going to support their content. I'm going to start showing up in the comments. And then, yeah, I'm going to come out here with a little bit of uh, whimsy and mischief because I've got this training as a sketch performer and B2B does not have that training. You know, they do not know how to write sketch comedy and how to write jokes and punchlines and stuff. So I'm like, if I just show up looking better on video than they are, Mm -hmm. I can sell this thing, you know? Yeah, it's amazing how much... um corporate America strangles out any kind of creativity and fun people because like what you're saying is completely like corporate politics per usual type of thing where, you know, someone gets a a higher position, they help with the people who they whatever have in their good graces or or vice versa. And uh, I've, I've even hired two, like I interviewed, hired them. They put me on a pip, the person I hired. So, and I like championed for them to be even hired by the company. I'm like, I hired somebody who filled in my gaps, you know, who's like a to-do list person when I'm not a to-do list person, but then they try to make me do to-do lists. I'm like, what the hell? And also they've got, you know, uh, eyes out for upper management type of stuff when I'm just like, Hey, why don't we help each other do whatever the thing is that we need to do? Even through the five firings, 
until I mentioned on here, no one even knew I was fired because in corporate America, they'll also not say anything about what happened. They're like, yeah, he worked from this day to this day and he made this much, but they won't say, by the way, we hate him and he got fired or whatever the thing is, because they'll probably more likely want you to get a job in the future and not ever have someone have to give a reference or talk about you again. But at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, they just like to sweep things under the rug and it's, it's so I was like, okay, well, this is six, you know, five or six times at this point, And I'm, I got to leave corporate America because they don't want me. They won't even let me stay, even if I pretend to want to be here. But, you know, it had I had to be ushered out. I'm glad that you at least chose to leave it for greener pastures. It's a more badass thing. Sure, I did get unemployment a few times and stuff like that. And I'd recommend for people who are going to get fired or thinking about quitting, maybe just keep a paycheck if you need it. But to your point, uh, the stagnation is real. And also sometimes you got to just get out of your comfort zone in order to go do the thing that you're meant to do. Well, yeah. And again, you have to understand what I was experiencing at the time, because not only was I in this job that was frustrating me, I was going through a divorce, you know, mm. and I was going through um, a pretty painful one because I was being cheated on rather publicly. Oh. And um, so, yeah, it was this thing where I was like horrified. I didn't know who knew and who didn't know. Um all of a sudden I was alone and looking for a new place. And um, it felt like my world was falling apart. Men aren't good at talking about feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like one of those things where like, I opened up to some friends being like, hey, my wife's cheating on me and I'm getting a divorce and I don't know what to do. And they're like, do not talk. To I do not want to hear. I'm not your therapist. Go talk to a therapist. I'm not. I don't want to hear about stuff like this, you know? So it was like, um didn't feel i had any friends i could talk to wasn't telling my family they were mm -hmm. like because we this was three months after we got married <laughs> oh yeah that's tough too because a lot of people view that as failure because they tell everybody they're like hey we're gonna be together forever psych kind of thing so that must be tough so they were um being like when are you sending out the thank you cards when are we going to get the photos from the wedding yeah and i i i couldn't tell them like she's she's cheating on me she moved yeah she moved on. I've got nothing. I've got no one. And, um, but yeah, I was selling to these college professors and I would just chat them up. I would just get on video and I noticed them and I would do my thing where I reached out to them mm -hmm. and they'd be like, Oh, so how long have you been teaching? And I'm like, I'm not a college professor. <laughs> you know, I'm working a sales job where everybody is younger than me and it gives me anxiety because it <laughs> makes me feel worthless. Um, but they didn't know. I, because I showed up for 30 seconds talking about what was important to them. They just assumed I was a college professor. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know what? They don't know. All this failing that I'm doing, I know. Yeah. It's I can see it. They cannot see it. And if I don't tell them, mm -hmm. they won't know, you know? And yeah, that's the thing about video. And that's the reason why I've gotten so into it is I tell people it's that you can control the way you show up. Yeah. You know, and if you if you're doing sales and the last thing you did was you lost an opportunity because you were desperate and pushy and uh, you started discounting and it didn't work, you can still go on video and not be pushy and you can go on video and be relaxed and you can be like, hey, Ben, I appreciated our meeting. Just to recap, this is what I offer. This is the price. Thanks for considering. And let me know if you ever want to chat again. You know, and I'm like, you don't have to be remembered as the pushy 
failure. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that'll fade from their memory, too, because they'll go back and they'll look and they'll see that video of you. Exactly. So it's like if I come back six months later and they say, oh, who's this Crispo guy again? I don't even remember what he sells. And they watch the video and my video is me and I look professional and I'm talking about them. Yeah, they're more likely to remember that, you know, going back to the improv stuff. Mm -hmm. I always felt like I was the least funny person in the group because I always I'm a straight man. Yeah. In comedy. So um, it's, tough. I have, it's tough to be that because you yeah. feel unfunny all the time. Right. Yeah. So I have big, expressive eyes. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was always in the scene. But the other guy was the crazy guy who was getting the laughs. And I was just the flustered guy who was reacting, you know, <laughs> that the audience would identify with. Mm -hmm. And um now I just use that to my advantage. You know, I stopped thinking like, oh, I'm not the star. Um, and now instead I think like, oh, okay, well, my prospect is the star, you know? Yeah. Um, all I got to do is be interested in their journey. And now they're not thinking about how, you know, the camera angle was off on my video or something. Like they're thinking about what they want to accomplish. And they're like, hey, maybe this guy can help me get there. Mm -hmm. That feeling that people get that like nobody cares, nobody notices me, I'm a failure, you know, I'm worthless. I just try to show them that like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to feel like that. If you're an overly sensitive person, that's dangerous, you know, that because that can lead to all sorts of terrible things. But what that also means is you probably understand other people better. There's a, a huge link between depression and comedy. A lot of our favorite comedy heroes, you know, died tragically. And yeah, I firmly believe that that part of you that's funny is a part of you that can sense human subtlety. Yeah, there's. It's like you can you can let it overwhelm you. You know, you can let it trap you in your mind. Yeah. Or you could just share it. You know, and and let people in on that. You know, a lot of the, my comedy is about heartbreak and rejection and being overlooked and falling short because that's relatable and audiences fear that so much. I mean, this is why you have a podcast. They're so afraid of failure that the prospect of getting to watch someone else experience it, that's very attractive to audiences. Yeah. The whole schadenfreude thing. Or I think that was a song in Avenue Q. If you know, I'm sure you know that one probably. Yeah, yeah. Schadenfreude. I, I was wondering, so just to shine a light on some of the people who might not have made it, is there anybody you'd say is like maybe the funniest person that you know from the Second City days or from just watching that didn't make it? And there's a couple names you mentioned earlier that I didn't recognize, but I didn't know if there's somebody specifically where you're like, oh man, I thought they were going to definitely, you know, go and be a star because everyone shouldn't realize how amazing they are, but. Yeah, I don't want to name names, um, but I sure. will say this is something about failure, too, that I want your audience to understand. And this is something I did not understand when I was in my 20s. You know, um, we're so used to comparing ourselves to other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've seen this, too, in your life. Sometimes you beat people who are more talented than you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I knew people who I was so insecure because I'm like, they are funnier than me. They are smarter than me. They are a better musician than me. People like them more than they like me. Mm -hmm. And those people burn out too. And yeah. I see people, I know for a fact that they are more talented than me and they have not done comedy in a decade. 
and I am doing comedy all the time. I get voiceover acting gigs now. And I've seen some people too, who I did not think they were that talented, but they kept showing up. Yeah. They kept showing up. They kept auditioning. They kept going to open mics. They kept doing it. And then they found their audience, you know? Yeah. Some of the people in my group, Octavarius, uh, you know, now some of my friend Matt Castelvi, uh, he's a player at Boom Chicago, which is where Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt and a bunch of people came from. He's doing stand up all over the world with like really big names. Uh, my friend Keith Habersberger, he's a mentor to me. He um, he has a group called the Try Guys. Their stuff gets millions of views. He's been all over the world. He's got a company and people working for him. You've probably seen some of his viral videos. You know, they they I've I've seen some friends who've we still talk and they've done very well for themselves, but they don't I don't know. We put the people more successful than us on this other level, but they don't necessarily do that to themselves, you know. Yeah. They're still out there trying hard. You know, just because someone has a million views does not mean they have a million dollars. You really don't know what other people are going through. And you really get such a facade on social media. You know, you see the highs. You don't see most of the lows. And a lot of times the highs are misleading. You know, and that's why I always kind of roll my eyes anytime anybody on LinkedIn is posting screenshots of their impressions being like, Oh, look how many views I got this week. It's like, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah. That aren't necessarily that you're, you know, a thousand times better than everybody else on this platform. You know, part of the reason for even this podcast existing is because the, to counteract the social media highlight reel kind of thing where people are only talking about the amazing things that they've done and not talking about the struggles that got them to that spot. And that's usually as far as I can tell, a requirement to get any kind of success is to have things don't, you know, that don't go right. So being a guest on the show, you get a get out of fail free card. This is not say that, but it's a, it is a business card. So I'm going to hand it through the internet. Thank you. Right. Cool. Thank you. And uh, now it's a short lived card because you got to cash it in immediately. But what it is, is it, so it's a get out of fail free card. So is there anything if you could pursue a career, a hobby, a passion, or something that you think you would do. So I usually say comedy, but you've already done that. But it's like where there's so much failure that would be involved that you either avoided going for it or have decided that it's not for you because of the amount of failure. I'm not sure if it's golf. I don't know what it is, but you're like, oh, I'm just not good at it where, it, you know, or a marathon, who knows? But you're like, oh, if I could just, you know, make this easier, maybe I would do it. Kind of thing. Yeah, you know what? This is a weird one. I'll say traveling. Oh. That sounds like a weird thing to fail at, but I'm I'm the type of guy who's like, oh, I should take a vacation. Travelocity. Which days to which days? Um well, I guess I'll just sit inside forever, you know? And it's <laughs> like, I I wish I was more adventurous. I wish I had traveled the world more. I keep telling myself this business is gonna be my reason to do it. Because mm -hmm. anywhere I go, as long as I film content, that's a business trip. Yeah. But yeah, I'm so afraid that it's going to be a waste of money or that I'm going to mess it up or whatever that I don't. So that's if I could remove that. Well, if you ever panic, I need a place to go. Feel free to come to Kansas City. I will uh, happily show you whatever it is around. You probably don't need to take a flight because I hate flying. I don't know if you are a I, I have like weird fear of flying. So I would probably use it for a travel, too, if I had one. But I, I even went to Boston 
a little over a year ago for my grandmother's 90th. And we took a train. It was 37 hours. And I had to go through Chicago. I was there for like a six hour layover, but I had to wear a mask for like the whole 37 hours, including sleeping. I was like, I really should have taken a flight because it was just so much a pain in the ass. But I did enjoy the little bit of Chicago I got to see while. Uh, what the fuck were they saying? Okay, so uh, <laughs> I don't know if you had anything else re- related to that uh, travel thing, but I'm going to go on to uh, the last thing is instead of fake it till you make it, I'm not a big fan of that. So I like to say fail it till you nail it. Is there something that you're starting to do now or you're just getting into where you don't know how it's going to work out, but you're going to keep doing it and fail it till you nail it? Yeah, so my music journey has been uh, an exercise in failure. I don't know where this is taking me, but I had a joke. One of my characters, Vague Man. Oh, yeah. It's me in a polo shirt and an orange cape, and I just say vague things, and that's that's the entire bit. Um, when I created that character, the joke was that I was a LinkedIn rock star. Uh, cause people throw the word rock star around a lot and they, the things they're doing has nothing to do with what a rock star does. Yeah. So I, I got my old saxophone from high school back. Mm-hmm. I, I got it repaired. I played it for a video almost on a, on a, as a joke, you know? And I remember I went to subreddits on saxophone and I'm like, Hey, I'm playing saxophone again. Any tips? And they're like, Hire a professional musician, you dweeb. It's going to sound terrible. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'll just play. You know, I only got to play for five seconds. Um, so I started playing saxophone. My neighbors hated it. It's too loud. So, yeah, I got this electric saxophone instead. Ooh. So this is a synthesizer. Oh, I always thought the whole time I was a clarinet or something when you play or an yeah. oboe, whatever the thing that looks like that is. So this is, you know, my horn now, um, but I've started practicing it and it i'm enjoying it and occasionally i jam with a band yeah i bought a pedal and you're gonna see more music incorporated into my stuff as it goes on so um i advise anybody who has ever enjoyed playing music if you still have your instrument just pick it back up you know and um yeah i'm gonna bring this uh on the road with me when i go travel to places i can bring this to open mics and yeah, it is a, if the audience can't see it, if you're listening at home, it looks like a clarinet. It is a synthesizer. So you play it like a saxophone. Uh, it's got saxophone fingerings, but I can play as like hundreds of different instruments. Um, so I can play as a flute or bass or mm-hmm. guitar or oboe or, you know, synth sounds. And um, yeah, I don't know where this is going to take me, but it would be funny if I accidentally became a rock star. That'd be awesome. Also, I need your help. So I've got a a Spotify playlist of the songs that I told people. And by told people, I mean like five people. But now I'm telling everybody here that I'm going to cover every song and I'm going to play every instrument and sing. But one of the songs is Careless Whisper, which I know is a I think it was a a, uh, some kind of other sax that was changed to a tenor afterwards. I don't know. I talked to somebody about sax. Do you want me to play? I can play Careless Whisper if yes, you want Yes, go it. for it. Please, if you can do it right now, then I don't even need to have you send it to me later. Here we go. <laughs> okay, I don't know that one. Let's do Baker Street. Let's do Baker Street. That one I can remember. So that's... I know you couldn't hear me. It was so good. 
Thank you. Let me try. Let me try careless whisper one last time. I know. I was yeah, no pressure. Up. Take I your time. I edit the shit out of these, so I'll okay, get rid of anything that sucks or whatever. You get the point. Nice. Well, so we'll fuck off in just a second. So where can people go to uh, check out what you're working on these days or how to find you uh, besides LinkedIn, which I'll definitely put into the uh, show notes. Yeah. So there's a number of ways you can find me. You can find me on TikTok. My handle is Chris sells his soul. <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter at Chris sells soul, or you could go to my website, Christopher and uh, I will be releasing a course this month. So uh, keep your eyes open for the Chris Bogue Method, my course for video prospecting for sales. And yeah, as you mentioned, anybody who wants to follow me every day on LinkedIn can ring the bell. And, uh, you know, I post all sorts of things. I post comedy videos. I post advice. I post content creation advice, sales advice, entrepreneurship advice. Um, so yeah, plenty of places to check me out. Awesome. Well, yeah, I suggest everybody go do that for sure. I just followed you on Twitter and uh, yeah, let me know how else I can help you, but I appreciate you joining the podcast and uh, sharing with the listeners, your story and, and all that jazz. So I appreciate it very much and I can't wait to uh, let them hear it. Thanks for having me. Love to be here. Of course. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook, which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, Always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.